Thank you. That was great. Um, and now Pam Cook and Josh Davies are going to finish the reading of the Montgomery City Code that re is, is going to reference what we'll be talking about and thinking about today. Section 11, same, powers of persons in charge of vehicle, passengers to obey directions. Any employee in charge of a bus operated in the city shall have the powers of a police officer of the city while in actual charge of any bus for the purpose of carrying out the provisions of the preceding section. And it shall be unlawful for any passenger to refuse or fail to take a seat among those assigned to the race to which he belongs at the request of any such employee in charge if there is such a seat vacant. Section 12, failure to carry passengers. It shall be unlawful for any person operating a bus in the city to refuse without sufficient excuse to carry any passenger provided that no driver of a bus shall be required to carry a passenger who is intoxicated or disorderly or who is afflicted with a contagious or infectious disease or refuses to pay in advance the fare required or for any other reason deemed unsatisfactory by the recorder should be excluded. I've been wondering how I was going to step off with this service. My original purpose was to share what I have newly learned about the Montgomery bus boycott of 1955 and 56. My sources for this uh, service are really three, three pieces of material. The first is Rosa Parks, My Story. The second is Claudette Colvin, who we're going to get be introduced to today, twice towards justice. And the third is the dark end of the street, black women, rape and resistance, a new history of the civil rights movement from Rosa Parks to the rise of black power. This is one of the most powerful pieces of literature I've ever come across. It is a very, very difficult book to read but I th also think absolutely essential if you want to begin to get any depth and perspective I into the reality of um, our history and our social order. Um, so I, I highly recommend all of these. <clears throat> the story I grew up with turns out to be inaccurate and woefully incomplete. So I was grateful to Jim Rodriguez last week for introducing the concept of unlearning and reevaluating to deeper our understanding and harden our commitment towards creating justice. The story, as I remember being told, and mind you, 1955 and 56, I was six or seven years old. On December 1st, 1955, there was segregation in the American South, and black people had to ride in the back of the bus. On this day, a woman named Rosa Parks was coming home from work as a seamstress. When the bus driver demanded that she give up her seat to a white person and move back, she refused to do this because she was tired after her day's work. She was arrested, 
and taken off the bus and charged with a crime. The African-American community decided that they would not agree any longer to be subjected to these laws. They stopped riding the buses in protest. It's called a, a boycott. They sustained the boycott for 381 days, and this succeeded in changing the laws regarding segregation on buses in Montgomery, Alabama. Emerging into leadership during the movement was Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, the young pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. The Montgomery boycott was thus seen as the spark that ignited the modern civil rights movement and thrust Dr. King into national and international prominence as the voice of the movement. <clears throat> Although there is neither time nor do I have the skill to reveal the full depths of this time in our history, I do want to expand on it. In 1896, the U.S. Supreme Court, in deciding the case of Plessy versus Ferguson, found that racial segregation, racial segregation, segregation by race was an acceptable civil design in establishing public institutions and accommodations, as long as these were maintained separate but equal, creating American apartheid. It became the law of the land, and particularly in the states of the former Confederacy, segregation was codified into every aspect of civil society. <coughs> but we have to keep in mind that, in fact, equal was not part of separate. And in case after case, separate was never intended to be equal. The social order was to be the preservation of white supremacy at all costs and by all means. With the enforcement of inequality came a social dynamic that went something like this. Since we can no longer own your body, your offspring, and your labor, we assume the right to keep you in a position of inferiority. We will enforce and perpetuate this through any degree of abuse, be it verbal, economic insult, theft, neglect, physical assault, sexual assault, and murder, while we see to it that you have no recourse by which to receive fairness or justice. Therefore, any expression of resistance was a threat to the rule of white supremacy, and the cost inflicted upon the resistor would be severe and far-reaching. This was how the system was maintained. It was basically a system of terrorism. As we see in the Montgomery City Code pertaining to buses, the bus operator had the power to direct pa passengers at the level of the police. He got to decide what the rules were at any time and under any circumstances. And some of the phrases in here um, are vague enough so that really any, anything would, was go. Um, so that the driver, who for any other reason de uh, de deemed satisfactory by the recorder, should be excluded. It was really completely up to uh, the mood um, of the bus driver as to who was going to ride, how they were going to ride, and how they were going to be treated 
over the course of that ride. The buses were the primary means of transportation for the thousands of black people traveling to work, many as maids and yardmen for the white households of Montgomery and youngsters traveling to school. Um, the bus uh, companies realized the majority of their revenue from the black community. So let's look at how this was set up. At bus stops, there was a waiting line for white passengers and one for black, colored in those days. White passengers boarded first and occupied the first eight rows of seats. Black passengers deposited the fare, which was 10 cents, in the box up front, exited the bus, and entered again through the back door if there was any white passenger sitting in the first eight rows. If there was no white passenger sitting in the first eight rows, at the discretion of a bus driver, a black person might walk down the aisle in the bus without having to get off the bus. If all seats for white passengers were taking, taken, the bus driver would demand any black passenger give up their seats in the entire next row to the white passenger because a white person would not have to sit in a row where there were black riders. Black riders would have to stand when all seats in the section were filled, even if there were vacant seats in the front of the bus. Some com common occurrences included buses pulling away after a rider paid a fare and before they entered the back of the bus, drivers shortchanging riders and putting them off when they asked for correct change, drivers passing stops where black riders stood, and there was also a constant barrage of verbal abuse, particularly directed to the black women who, <coughs> who used the buses. They could at any point be called niggers, black bitches, heifers, and whores. Women could be slapped and beaten if the driver felt he had been challenged, and there were instances of riders being killed in the course of a dispute. The buses became the place where white white supremacy conducted and black citizens lived out daily humiliation, de degradation, and assaults of racial segregation. When does a person in a community have enough? Many elements were coming into place. The African-American community in Montgomery had a strong network of organizations and associations. The many churches were focal points for support, organization, communication, and trust. There were clubs, fraternal or orders, sororities and women's organizations, black business organizations, trade union chapters. The NAACP had an active office <clears throat> with, uh, with the unanimous decision on May 17, 1954, by the Supreme Court in the case of Brown versus the Board of Education, Topeka, that the doctrine of separate but equal had no place in public education, the first deconstruction of Jim Crow se segregation was set in motion. Activists in Montgomery began to prepare to present a case to the courts to directly challenge the conditions that racial segregation created for black people on the buses. On March 1954, an opportunity presented when a 15-year-old high school student, Claudette Colvin, refused to give up her seat to a white, so a white woman could sit in a row that would have been vacated by four black students. She was arrested, jailed. After she was bailed out, 
the head of the NAACP, E.D. Nixon, sent his chief investigator to interview her as a possible plaintiff in this case. That person was Rosa Parks. A couple of months after Claudette's arrest, another teenager, Mary Louise Smith, refused to obey the driver and relinquished her seat to a white passenger. <clears throat> she was also arrested, but her family decided to pay her fine, and therefore um, she, she was not going to be uh, a plaintiff in that case. As E.D. Nixon, attorney Fred Gray, who was a young Montgomerian who had finished his law education at Case Western Reserve and chose to return to Montgomery to become a civil rights lawyer. And Joanne Robinson, a college professor and head of the Women's Political Council, worked to build a case to take to federal courts. They ultimately rejected Claudette and Mary Louise as plaintiffs. Claudette had become pregnant after that incident and both she and Mary Louise came from an area in Montgomery that made them vulnerable to attacks on their character and created distraction from the substance of the case. On December 1st, 1954, Rosa Parks boarded a bus heading home from her job as a steamstress and came to her moment in history. <clears throat> She says, people always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired, but this isn't true. I was not, I was not tired physically, or no more tired than I usually was at the end of a day of work. I was not old, although some people have an image of me as being old then. I was 42. No, the only tired I was was tired of giving in. Now, I want to say, take a little aside to say a little bit about Rosa Parks, because although much more recently the, the actuality of who she was and what her life was and what part she did play in this is finally beginning to be fleshed out, Rosa Parks came from an activist family. Her husband, Raymond, had been member of the NAACP when that meant you would die if you were uh, identified as such. She talked about them having meetings in her homes where all the guns that the members had brought were sitting on the kitchen table while they met. Um, the feeling was that, yeah, you know, the Klan or whomever may possibly kill us, but we're going to take down one or two before they get to do that. By 1940, Raymond had kind of pulled back a little from that work. He was a bit discouraged by the situation and the progress that had not been made. And Rosa Parks joined the NAACP in 1943. She was one of the few women active. She became the secretary, which means that she was not only the, 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 the conduit for all communication that was going to happen, but she knew what was going on, who was doing what. One of the jobs of the NAACP was in investigating uh, complaints of abuse, assault, um, rape, and other uh, violence against uh, African Americans. 
so that she had an intricate knowledge of the, the reality of life in the black community in that part of the country. She also, um, E.D. Nixon, who, who was the head of the NAACP in Montgomery, was also a union leader. He belonged to the Brotherhood of Sleeping, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Workers. She became the secretary for the union as well. Um, in, her, in Danielle McGuire's book, The Dark End of the Street, she has a quote here. <clears throat> Historian J. Mills Thornton argues um, that Rosa Parks was more actively involved in the struggle against racial discrimination and more knowledgeable about efforts being made to eliminate it than all but a tiny handful of the city's 45,000 black, black citizens. She knew Nixon was searching for a plaintiff who was beyond reproach and was certain that he would support her since she, she, she fit his qualifications of respectability. <clears throat> but it was unlikely that she planned a protest. Instead, when Rosa Parks had an opportunity to resist, she seized it. Her decision to stay put that fateful day was rooted in her history as a radical act activist and years of witnessing injustice, from Recy Taylor to Gertrude Person, Perkins to Jeremiah Reeves. <clears throat> so she, she was not a soft-spoken, tired, middle-aged seamstress at all. She knew exactly what she was doing and was ready to do it. Um, she, by the way, did know Claudette Colvin. Um, she had also, uh, Rosa had also become uh, the youth leader in the NAACP and um, became very involved when Claudette was arrested to um, have money for her bail and begin to support her in taking her, her case to court. <coughs> It was over the course, um, five, five days after her arrest, uh, 35,000 leaflets went out basically asking Montgomery's black population to stop riding the buses for one day. They explained that another black woman had been arrested. We want to make our, our statement more powerful at this point. And then the next day, People also didn't ride. They walked. And the next day, and the next day, and for 381 days after that. Now, how did this get supported? You know, nobody had expected that it would take this turn, that it would, it would elevate to, to this level of energy and commitment. Um, this was a very dangerous thing. People lost their jobs for t participating in the boycott. Um, so that uh, the, uh, the people on the, uh, on the bottom, Rosa Parks and Joanne Richardson, and many, many other women set up a support system, certainly improvised, but it worked. They formed the, the Montgomery Improvement Association. Among other things is that they collected clothes for people who were going to need clothes and shoes because they'd lost their jobs and had no income. They coordinated transportation. A couple of things happened. One was that the church 
um, buses and, and cars and stuff like that were used to transport people where the buses hadn't. They organized with the black taxi owners and had them t uh, have uh, group rides for the same fare that one would have on the bus, which was 10 cents a ride. They coordinated points of pickup throughout the city. They prepared meals and food. And they did this every single day. It was a long, drawn out, um, continuous effort that required constant involvement, communication, improvisation, and it was carried out by and large by the women of, of Montgomery. Um, many people walked and continued to walk. A lot of, uh, now the reaction to this took a lot, number of forms. Um, after a while, they began to arrest the private cab com uh, drivers for, re for not charging their full fare for a ride, which in those days was 45 cents. They uh, found ways to interfere with the, um, with the um, congregation, the, the church uh, car services um, and, and things like that. There were, threat, there were death th threats, there were bombings, and the, 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 the people kept walking. The boycott continued. There were attempts by the city at that point to negotiate with the leaders of the boycott, um, but those didn't go very far. So that was this context. There uh, was a level of commitment at an in intensity and a number that it was going to be difficult to, you know, you, 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 you couldn't murder 4,000 people a day. <clears throat> but it was in this context that Fred Gray put together the, laws, the class action lawsuit that became, became knows, known as Browder versus Gale. Gale was the mayor of Montgomery, and Browder was one of the four, four plaintiffs that included um, Aurelia Browder, Claudette Colvin, Mary Louise Smith, and Susie McDaniel, all people who had been abused on the buses and had been refused, had been refused um, to get off of, out of their seats uh, and had been arrested. They asked that the case be uh, judged by a three-judge panel, and the plaintiffs won the decision two to three. The decision basically was saying that the, co the city code of Montgomery violated the 14th Amendment of uh, equal protection and due process under law and was therefore unconstitutional. The city then appealed the decision to take it to the Supreme Court. All the while, the, the boycott continued. In December of 1955, the Supreme Court uh, came to decision that supported the decision of the lower court, therefore legally ending racial discrimination on public transportation in Montgomery and throughout the rest of the country. But it wasn't until the decision was 
was delivered to Montgomery on December 21st that the boycott ended. <clears throat> the decision was met with jubilation on the part of the black community and increased and intensified violence and active terrorism on the part of white supremacy. Buses were shot at, people were beaten up at bus stops, churches and homes were bombed, and death threats were made. <clears throat> but all, but two, two very interesting things also followed with that. Both Claudette Colvin, now a single mother expelled from school and needing to support her infant son, and Raymond and Rose, Rosa Parks faced similar situations. As a result of their respective involvement in changing the course of history, they could not find work in Montgomery. The Parks first moved to Virginia and then to Detroit, where Rosa had family, and remained there through the rest of their lives. Claudette completely ignored in her community and written out of, out of history until 1980, ultimately came to New York City, became a nurse, and worked to support then her two sons. I believe she is still lives in New York City, so she's about 80 years old now. Dr. King to, uh, continued to be a leading force in the movement until his assassination. But here's Danielle McGuire's observation. It was not just Rosa Parks, the radical activist, who was written out of the story of Montgomery, the Montgomery bus boycott. Joanne Richardson and her army of women in the WPC, as well as the thousands of working class women who made Montgomery the walking city, were reduced to the footnote in history. While the media were primarily to blame in framing the story around King, other civil rights organizations, in an effort to use Montgomery's success to spark similar civil rights campaigns throughout the South, recast the bus pro protest as a movement led by ministers. <clears throat> what troubles me about the tendency to iconize figures, Dr. King in particular, is that <clears throat> it distorts the viewing and telling of history. The Montgomery boycott did not materialize and proceed to a victory because of one man or three. It was the thousands of women, men, and, and youth risking more than we can imagine sitting here today to change the most fundamental quality of their lives. The lesson here is that ordinary people, me and you, can be agents of change, drivers of movements, and writers of wrongs. <clears throat> I'm missing. Oh, 